Leaving No Home Unheated. Interview with Dora Fazakash, episode 24. How can households afford heating and transport in a low-carbon Europe? Today we speak with Dora Fazakash, the Managing Director of Cambridge Econometrics in Hungary. Their consultancy just released a scenario report with the European Climate Foundation, outlining the higher cost for households if the price of greenhouse gas emissions rise. In this interview, we cover a range of issues such as how understanding the different national energy practices influence how energy is produced and consumed. We delve into an almost anthropological view of the benefits from researching and living in the same place. Then we get into the research scenario report on transport and heating. The scenarios demonstrate the impact of rising prices for the European trading system for emissions. The future demonstrates the price of energy will go up. Households are foreseen to be struggling unless a greater political effort is made to assist those with lower incomes. My takeaway from our discussion is Europe is headed for a very expensive energy system to meet its climate change goals for 2050. The burden will fall on poorer households. The warning signs are already here for national governments and the EU. Action is needed to ensure households can afford this transition. The study provides different national comparisons, and we discuss the impact in Poland and Germany. The scenarios demonstrate that coal or even a switch to gas for heating will be a very expensive option in the future. In the end, we get back to the unattractive and unexciting option of energy efficiency as the way forward. Subsidies for energy-poor households are needed. While the rich can afford the transition, it is those with meager incomes that cannot afford it. Here, I want to interject the importance of this topic. The scenarios are based on data and envision a future where the poor struggle to pay for heating and all their energy usage. If the EU wants to be the enforcer of climate change goals, they also need to ensure effective policies are in place. There cannot be an opening for radical populist politicians to derail, steal, or use climate change policy as a means to undermine democracy. If the stated goal is to create a zero-carbon future, then ensuring affordable access to energy needs to be the priority. Focusing only on price and market mechanisms will leave too many people behind and derail the effort. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to speak to the people building a clean energy system. Before we begin this, this week's episode, I want to ask if you have a guest suggestion to drop us a note on our My Energy 2050 LinkedIn profile page. And if you like this episode, please comment and share on your favorite social media channel. And now for this week's episode. This week, we are speaking with Dora Fazakash. She is the Managing Director of Cambridge Econometrics in Hungary. She was a Fulbright Scholar at Columbia University. She holds a PhD in Environmental Economics and has worked in a variety of research and leadership positions in Hungary and the UK. Today, we are talking about a new study released by Cambridge Econometrics and the European Climate Foundation titled Exploring the Trade-Offs in Different Paths to Reduce Transport and heating emissions in Europe. Dora, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Um, I just want to maybe start off. I, I read the study, and I think it's really good and really challenging to kind of assumptions uh, people have about this energy transition and uh, the price, for example, with the ETS system. And we'll get all into that. Uh, and I'm really interested to to push you on some of the, the results that are in the report. Um, but first, I, I'm interested to hear about your background 
And really, how did you get involved in research around energy, transport, sustainability? This is the focus of the podcast. And I think it's really important to, to find out about people's background and how they got in this area. Sure. So I did my, uh, my undergraduate and master's study at the Corvinus University in Budapest. I was uh, studying economics and uh, environmental economics. That was my uh, minor. Um, and then, um, then I started a PhD and the topic of the PhD was the emission trading system in uh, Europe, in the European Union. And that was uh, the very beginning. I was focusing on the pilot phase, which ran between 2005 and, and 2007. Um, and then with this PhD, I got uh, this Fulbright scholarship and went to uh, the States, to Columbia University and, and focused even, even more on the ETS. And uh, it was interesting that I got involved in, a, in an international um, research group and uh, they were actually lacking a person who could focus on, on Eastern Europe. So I, I never thought that I would uh, benefit from, from coming from Hungary um, in, this, um, in this American uh, organization. And uh, so basically that shaped further what my research questions were. For, for the PhD. So I was focusing on how the ETS functioned in Hungary in the pilot phase. And then when I came back from, from New York, I did some interviews with the installations who were under the ETS. And, um, and actually the, the research uh, results were incorporated into a book uh, that's titled Pricing Carbon. Um, and and um, yeah, I was I was the one focusing on on Eastern Europe, and then um, and then just it just continued from there. So basically, focusing on the ETS and, and climate policy, climate policy research. I started working at an organization called Climate Strategies, which uh, which was based in Cambridge in the UK, uh, but it's 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 more like a network of researchers rather than a than an organization. So we worked with. Um, with many research organizations across the world and convened research. And basically there I realized that climate policy cannot really go without energy, energy policy um, and, and, uh, and sustainability. And yeah, transport just followed on from there with the, with the wider range of topics that uh, I started to cover when I joined Cambridge Econometrics. Mm -hmm. So we, we can just simply say that energy is the center of everything. At least that's what I like to say. Yeah, 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 I agree. <laughs> but one of my one of my questions for you then is, um, yeah, as a researcher from Hungary, starting out and everything. But I, I think it's relevant. But what I've come to see is, or maybe you can answer. I have an answer, but I'll ask you the question: Is what relevancy does? And not, let me insult you by saying, you know, coming from Eastern Europe, show or having an expertise in, in this broad region of Eastern Europe, show why why is this why is it important to be doing research, and why are I would say other researchers interested in this region to to look at, and, and the, especially around the price and this transition uh, of carbon pricing. I would say for two reasons. One is really the our culture and how maybe now if you say climate change, then people know what you're talking about. But quite a few years ago, um, I don't think people were aware. But if you talked about energy security, then people really started paying, atten paying attention. So I think having a researcher in an international group who would understand the underlying logic 
um, for example, in Eastern Europe, would definitely add to the to the results because it's not just about the numbers and, and the evidence. It's really about how you communicate it, how how you might be able to change their behavior. Um, it's it's not only the price effect, but also what does it mean for certain quintiles of households? What does it mean for for certain people? What does it mean for for um, institutions or, or companies under the ETS, for example, it's, it's a different type of lobbying, for example, that might happen in, in Eastern or Western Europe. So I would say mainly this, this is the reason. Mm -hmm. So these regional differences and then having, being aware of those regional differences, what, what's important in the energy system within a region like energy security or yeah, the, the spending power of households, all, all these come to, to play and understanding I would say in, in collecting and in developing a large study, just like one we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I agree. And then, and also the, the starting point for the energy mix in different countries and what might work in one country, what might not work. We, we have nuclear, but it might be a totally different case in Germany and how we rely on the Russian gas. Is it something we want to continue doing or should we continue doing um, putting aside the politics really just uh, from an economics point of view. So the, these are the questions that might come up and, and someone who knows the background or, or, or knows the, the culture in a country might be better uh, to answer these. Yes, yes. That's my book, Energy Cultures. I'll, I'll put a plug in there. Anyone can buy, although it's over $100, but it's it's well worth it. So, okay, uh, Dora, then um, let, let, me, let me turn to... Um, uh, what what you're doing at uh, Cambridge Econometrics uh, here here in Budapest, and maybe you could even talk about the the, the organization as a whole, and and uh, as I understand, it's based in in the UK as well. But what 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 do you do? Yeah, so Cambridge Econometrics is a research consultancy. We like to say that we are in between uh, an academic research institution and a mainstream consultancy. Um, because our our projects are um, vary between three to three months to three years, and and we are usually uh, funded by international organizations or uh, governments, but we it's not core funding; it's really project funding. And uh, Cambridge Econometrics was a spin-off from Cam from the University of Cambridge um, in at the end of the nineteen seventies. And um, basically, a PhD student started off a model that we actually use today, but with every year, there are more and more developments. It's called the E3ME, and mm -hmm. this E stands for Energy, Economy, and Environment. And I can talk a, a bit more about the model itself, but so the company is, um, um, is headquartered in Cambridge, and I started working in the Cambridge office as a, as a manager. And, um, and then basically because of Brexit and me moving back to Budapest just for family reasons, um, we, we agreed that it might be a good idea to set up a business here. Um, it's easy to find really good economists here to work in the company and, um, and also the, the costs are uh, comparative. <laughs> Compared to the UK. 
compared to the UK indeed. So we, we opened the, the, the Budapest office in 2018 and it's been functional since. In the beginning, we were more focusing on just serving the already existing projects and existing clients. And then as the company grows now, we are eight people in, in, in Budapest. Um, we, it's, it's also the strategy to do more in this region, focus on on, uh, on the issues in, in this region. And when I say this region, it's not just Eastern Europe, but also maybe the West Balkans and, and the, and um, so, mm-hmm. so, um, but also it's usually funded, for example, by, by the, um, the various directorates of the European Commission. But the focus of the research is this region. For example, now we have two ongoing studies which are uh, funded by DG Reform. Mm-hmm. And we focus on the fossil fuel transition and, uh, and what impact it would have on, on certain regions, certain sectors, certain type of workers, um, and, and how, how we can compensate it, what a just transition would really mean in, in, uh, in reality. Yeah. And, and, and it's important. Uh, okay. I'm totally biased, but right. I mean, we're both located here in Budapest, but, uh, and it's nice that we're doing this over zoom, but, <laughs> um, what, uh, by being located in the region, you have this perspective, right? Both on, I would say on the Balkans and you're aware of these issues of how, how things are different than compared to the UK or in Germany or in France. Yeah, exactly. That's what we say, that we are a global consultancy with the global uh, models, but local uh, knowledge. Yeah, well. yeah. Sorry, I, I, I'm I'm way too, I, I just really believe in, you know, working where you're, I don't know, where you live is also really important because you see the issues around every day, right? And And you understand about, I don't know, just seeing energy efficiency or the types of cars on the street. All these issues inform how you do the analysis. Exactly. I mean, yeah, you, it, it's easy to say something from the UK, but if you haven't really been in, in this part of Europe and, and you don't see the, the, the vehicle stock here, it's easy to say to change to EVs, but we really live on the second-hand cars sold from Europe. So if you don't know these kind of um, aspects, then it's, it's not easy to say any conclusions. Yeah, and... Um, and yeah, so we we are an evi- we do evidence based research, and and climate and energy policy is just one of the topics we cover. That's my uh, specialty, but uh, we focus on the three pillars of, of sustainability. So we have a, a group uh, of researchers who focus on uh, society issues, um, gender issues, employment effects, jobbing jobs impacts. Um, we have a, a team who does economy topic, industrial competitiveness, tax and finance, uh, local uh, competitiveness, focus on local uh, areas. And, um, and the team I work in focuses on environmental topics, circular economy, climate and energy, and also nat- nature-based solutions, natural resources. So it's, it's, we cover quite a, a wide range of topics and we also have an office now in, in Brussels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why the whole geographic um, differentiation also started because the, the Brussels office would be more focusing on, on serving the, the European Commission, uh, whereas we would focus more on, on this region and, and the UK um, office focuses on the UK mostly, uh, but also globally. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of change in the organization just the past few years. This Brexit kind of kicked off things in the rest of Europe for the organization. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Good. And then one of them, actually, this is why we're here today then, is, is to talk about the, the study. And I won't make fun of your title, but uh, exploring the trade-offs and different paths to reduce the transport and heating emissions in Europe. And this, this report was partially funded by the European, uh, or maybe all of it, you can correct me, by the European Climate Foundation. And um, uh, why, why was this report necessary at this time? Yeah, so internally we call it the ETS extension report, so you're right, we, we definitely <laughs> a shorter title. It, the, the longer title is also explained by the fact that we already had a report focusing on, on exactly the same topic, how um, road transport and building heating emissions could be covered. Um, and in that report, we focused on two different scenarios we reached some conclusions and we wanted to build on those conclusions and have a follow-up report. That's why that explains the, the, the long title. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be really nice to everyone that's on my podcast, but okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the European Climate Foundation uh, has funded this research, and uh, but we also had a steering committee uh, consisting of uh, transport and environment, which is an, an international NGO, and also the regulatory assistance project. So we had uh, people already at the beginning of the project where we set up what kind of scenarios we would want to look at. And when I say scenarios, I mean how to um, reduce the transport and heating emissions. And we 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 looked at if it if if these became part of the ETS, if these became part of the existing ETS, if we just linked the existing ETS price and applied that to these sectors, uh, what would happen if we set up a separate ETS just for these two sectors? And uh, we also looked at not introducing a carbon price, but just introducing regulatory measures to reach the, the emission reduction target set. And you ask why we have been doing it? It's just because this July there will be, they will be at the, at the European Parliament will be voting um, about exactly this, how to reduce the transport and heating emissions. Um, because what we have currently is the ETS, the ETS has a target, but also under the effort sharing regulation, there is a target for the non-ETS sectors that they also have to reduce their emissions. And currently this is um, managed by the national government. Um, but we wanted to inform the debate for the Commission to, to know what would be the impacts of, of this decision. So this is the kind of research we, we actually do, that it, we, we do impact assessments to inform exactly these kind of debates. So it's always ex ante, we do it before the decision, we, we take the target that um, is already set, and then uh, define, develop different kind of pathways or scenarios to reach that target and then look at the impact of these scenarios and we actually compare it to each other. So we are not saying that this is what's going to happen. We're just, it's not a prognosis. We're just saying um, if you do it this way, then the effects would be higher or lower or better uh, than if you do it the other way. Mm -hmm. And for the non-ETS sector, what does that include? I mean, in this report is the building sector like households and kind of buildings in general but uh, are there other factors uh, that are involved or other 
How do you define non-ETS sectors? Yeah, so the ETS sectors is is uh, is um, the heavy industry, the energy intensive industries, um, chemicals, um, and and uh, and the power generation. And what we call non-ETS sectors is really those sectors that are under this effort sharing regulation. This is um, road transport and buildings, but also agriculture, waste, and other. Uh, industrial activity, which is not currently covered by the ETS. So the current ETS covers approximately 40% of uh, total emissions in Europe. Um, and if we take into account the rest, then, then we will, we can uh, tackle more of the emissions in, in Europe. So that's why. Okay. Uh, let's define something first. Uh, so ETS, we keep talking about ETS, which is the emission, correct me, trading six, uh, system or scheme. We, it has a, a price, right? And how, how has this come about? Okay, so yeah, let's start from the You're beginning. the expert on this. <laughs> yeah, so ETS stands for Emission Trading System. I think it started as a scheme, but then it just got system easier to pronounce or... Um, and the whole underlying logic is really that you decrease the emissions where it's the cheapest to do. And for this, there is a trading system set up. There is a, it's called a, a cap and trade system that you put a, a cap on, on, a, on, on the emissions in a certain region uh, and or on certain sectors. And the way the emission and the cap is reduced every year, and the way you reduce these emissions is is um, is really up to the installations involved in this trading system. It's not. It's on, on the on the opposite side. It you could just apply a price to carbon, but here. The economics, uh, economic uh, theory says that uh, just by attaching a value to the cost of abating one ton of CO2 might be cheaper for one installation than for the other. It can do with the technologies they use, the efficiency of, of their operations. So it's the, the, the installation for whom it's cheaper would reduce their emissions. And if another installation cannot reduce their emissions, then they can buy permits from that installation. And in that sense, this is the, the, the trading system that um, for one ton of emitting CO2, for emitting one ton of CO2, um, an installation gets a permit. And in the beginning, so this is the theory behind it, but in, in reality and in the beginning, um, installations didn't really understand the value of it. They just saw this as another economic or, or even administrative burden on them. They got the permit and then at the end of the year, they had to um, submit these permits that they have actually used. So that's all they did. Um, and, and the price was very low in the, in the early years of, of operations. And that's why the European Commission started to introduce additional um, measures and also additional uh, changes to the system to make uh, the price higher and, and also uh, that companies don't receive these permits for free, but they will have to pay for it. 
but then all aspects came in that um, some industries said that um, hang on this is this is not fair on us because if we move our operations out of eu then we wouldn't have this price so we will just move and then the other sectors for example cement sector said but then this is not fair on us because we can't really move because we won't be able to move and then ship back cement so the commission came up with um, criteria on how to define which sectors are at risk of this um, phenomenon of moving out of the eu which is called carbon leakage um, and um, and also the commission realized that there were too many permits on the market so then they uh, introduced the market stability reserve that basically just took some permits out of the market and that that no one will use that they also introduced auctions um all, all this to like try to increase the price right yeah to to really make it because if there's no price then you're not really encouraged to reduce your emissions because the whole point of this is that um, you can get a um money for abating more you if you can sell your allowances to other and and it kind of started off because i mean the national authorities could give uh, their sectors the permits that they they wanted to they they allocated how much and they essentially over allocated right so the price was really low and then the eu kind of stepped in to try uh, through different mechanisms to increase the price the allocation was really too high but it had to also do that with the fact that no one really measured how how much permit they would need. And for example, here again, there is a difference between the Eastern and the Western EU countries because the for the Eastern EU countries, the leaders managed to say that 1990 would be the reference year. But then actually after the change of regime, the, the industrial operations really decreased. So these countries in this region could already did their targets without doing anything without doing anything and and for western countries the the reference year was 2004 but it, yeah i mean you have to first measure something and then you can decrease it but if you don't have a reference from what you're decreasing then i would say in theory this is a very very good system um but in reality it it has uh, quite a few issues and um, so gradually the commission is, is trying to improve it and, and make it work and, and I think it's one of the slogans to say that uh, the ETS is definitely going to stay one pillar of the EU climate policy but there are additional measures now. Yes and, and this is where your study I would say picks up because then it starts projecting out into the future the impact of if things stay with ETS or I don't want to say and or there's just different scenarios but also or there's also this what effort sharing regulation maybe maybe we can talk about this so this is in in the in the document or in your report this effort sharing regulation maybe you could talk about this. is this i don't say it sits opposite to ets but it becomes like another tool i'm trying to make it or say it very simple <laughs> No, it's a, it's a complicated <laughs> the, the effort sharing regulation regulates those sectors which are not under the emission trading system. So these are the agriculture and waste and, and, uh, and what we call in the report uh, and as non-ETS sectors. And there is a tendency to make the whole thing a bit simpler. So 
maybe get rid of the effort sharing regulation and move everything under the ETS. Um, the effort sharing regulation is currently handled by the national government, so every country has their own way of, of regulating this. I, I need to do this politely, but um, at the national level, maybe there's a, a willingness, it depends on the country, to not tighten things up too much. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's the lobbying. Mm-hmm. But but in your scenarios that you show, like there's a huge, and I just want to encourage everyone to read it because then I think our conversation makes much more sense. But there's a huge, depending on the scenario, increase in price for household consumers. And maybe we could just talk about essentially the energy poor, for example, like if there's a high ETS price or uh, payment transfer system comes into play. Overall, maybe you could just describe what in your different scenarios, what's the impact on poorer, poorer households? Yeah, in order to answer this, I wanted to step back one okay. step, just why is the carbon price really high? So how how do we arrive to saying the carbon price is high? And it has to do something with the model that we use. So what we have this E3ME model that I mentioned in the beginning, it's a macroeconometric model. Uh, it's defined by uh, econometric uh, um, equations. Basically, the way it operates is we we set the target to be in line with this uh, increased ambitious um, 55% emission reduction target. What does it mean for these non-ETS sectors? It means um, a 40% reduction uh, by 2030. The way uh, we set up these scenarios in the model was that if there is an ETS, then then it's only the ETS that should arrive to this target. So basically the model calculates what carbon price is needed in each year to go to that target. So that's why we arrived to a very, very high carbon price um, above uh, 180 uh, or even to 200 um, euros per ton by 2030. And, and then we, we calculated what it means um, in, in terms of basically this would mean uh, an increase in the heating prices and an increase in the fuel for cars. We, we calculated at an at a, in EU level, but we also looked at uh, some country case studies and um, and then we looked at um, the what it would mean uh, for certain households as well, and uh, we we looked in the literature uh, what what is the price elasticity for certain types of households for heating and transport road transport, and it was very interesting to see that uh, that basically the scenarios yield very different results uh, for certain households. We also looked at what the government can do with the revenues from these permits, because we've, we have found that it makes all the difference. If the government just uses it to pay back their debts or whatever, just parts of the, their, their own budget, then it definitely impacts uh, the households very negatively. But if it uh, recycles this revenue back to households, 
either by reducing their taxes or giving them lump sum payments that we currently have, for example, in Hungary as well, this Reggie Chokentis. Yes, household utility reduction program, artificially, I don't know, we'll just call it artificial uh, yeah. price setting. Um, or or uh, they encourage investment into low carbon R&D, research and development, then we have seen that the results are different because then it's actually positive. Uh, mm -hmm. So the research and development money, if the money goes to research and development, the money from like ETS or whatever scheme goes into research and development actually makes a bigger impact, like for employment, for households, and actually they can afford to make this transition. Yes, because then the, there are increases in investment. So then the low carbon technology costs decrease in the long run that results in higher take up. Mm -hmm. uh, also households save on energy bills. So they have money to invest. They have money to spend on other things in the economy. And that's how it, it actually leads to a positive GDP uh, effect. So the state needs to be much more active in its regulations, but also kind of reinvestment schemes and what renovation schemes to ensure that people have affordable heating is the example here. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's the main finding of our study that it's not about whether the ETS is a good tool or not, but how can you make it a good tool or how can you mitigate the negative effects of this tool? And what are the findings? Because this is what shocked me. What are the findings? And we, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to name countries, right? But but some countries really have hands-off approach on energy efficiency and helping households move towards a much more, I don't know, low carbon heating system or just less energy use. What are the implications for households that do not, uh, are not under or in a country where there's more proactive energy policy? Yeah, it, it, well, it does have to do with or also the starting energy mix, for example, because in, 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 um, in Poland, there is coal that people use for, for their heating, uh, whereas in Germany, it's more gas. So we, we also took these into account, the more that takes into account the national energy and climate plans, uh, the current historic data, as well as all the um, additional announced policies. Um, and and we did look at the certain um, quintiles of household and how, how these are affected. So yeah, I encourage everyone to just read the report, but it's also a, a summary uh, of it and, um, and some really easy understandable graphs that show the distributional effects. But wait, because I have the numbers here. Like, so if Poland, for example, sticks with gas heating, then their heating for household heating would increase by like uh, 70%, or if they stay with coal for heating, they would increase by 188%. Right? Yeah, for me, it, this, this says that it's, it's also not a good approach to switch to gas. Yeah. This is why, sorry, I really like your study. I, and I, re <laughs> I think it's, it's really interesting. So then this really means that there must be what, electrification of heating or heat pumps, th this type, these types of more, which we view now as more expensive technologies, but there must be a concerted effort into R&D, right, then to drive the, the price lower. Yeah, and, and 
especially in, in, in Eastern Europe, there are so many low-hanging fruits that you can just start with the energy efficiency um, investments and, and uh, insulations for, for buildings. And it's, it's just much easier to do these quick uh, and easy fixes. But then also um, doing the, the, the technology switches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And but yeah, okay, okay, that's all. You're I, I would just say the technology switches might be quite quite difficult. Social, social, political, kind of in the, so in the realm there. That, mm -hmm. That's the role of the government to to subsidize and help those poor, energy poor, but also um, yeah, poor uh, households to be able to to follow the technology changes. Of course, it's much easier for the for the richer. Uh, groups to just put uh, solar PVs on their panels and and but that's exactly the role of the government to incentivize and and help with the rollout of, of these technologies. Mm -hmm. Maybe we turn to transport slightly, which is less interesting to me, but I but I still think it's it's really important. And in the area of transport, what were some of the solutions or what were some of the results of the uh, coming from the scenarios? Yeah, it's interesting because for transport is. It shows a different picture because, for example, the, the poorest households wouldn't really be impacted because they, they are not driving. Yeah, it, it's more the median uh, households that are actually impacted. Uh, their, their price uh, reaction or demand reduction is, 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 is more uh, seen uh, from our numbers. And, um, and the richer are, are less uh, price sensitive, really. And what might be the solutions? Yeah, um, so it's 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 really these um, um, subsidies for EVs and um, and um, standards can make the most uh, effective um, emission reductions in, in this uh, sector. Yeah, what I like from the report is the line: "All paths are not equal." So. <laughs> And I think it shows, right, where, where there's a greater necessity for government. There's always, a, you know, a necessity for government involvement, but really this foresight of where things are headed. And I think the report shows that. And, and you know, government has to step up and really help households make this transition because they can't do it for themselves. Indeed. What we like to say is, is that the carbon pricing alone uh, can be seen as, as a stick approach whether on the other hand if you uh, emphasize regulations to deliver a lower emission pass and uh, help uh, the poorer then it's kind of a carrot and stick approach yeah so we need more carrots which are good we can we can grow those i, I just want to maybe move on a little bit uh about um education and actually i mean uh, what what you've produced here actually right it stems from a phd of students and and their work and I really like this this model as well. The uh, sorry E three E three E M E. It really shows what education can do, right? And and how people kind of take their research and go forward. And I was just wondering, maybe for those that are interested in climate modeling and climate policy overall, what kind of education do they need to to go in this area? Or if they're looking to bring in and hire people uh, with this type of expertise, what kind of education should should they be looking for? So what we we look for is usually economists, but with a very quantitative um, studying or quantitative uh, degree. And, and um, for modeling, I would say statistics is very important, but also the knowledge of, of a programming language. 
and um, we use Fortran currently, which uh, if you know programming languages is, is somewhat out of date, but we are uh, moving, transitioning to Python. So we are encouraging the application of, of economists who, who already know Python and be um, starting to use and, uh, and our economists are quite pro on Python. And it's just an easier and quicker way really to run the model because uh, um, it sometimes takes a really long time to just run all these scenarios. It's not it's not just you push a button and then you get the results. And, um, I see that my colleagues leave on uh, their computers during the night and by the time they come back in the morning, then the results are printed. But um, wow, I, I would do one like on Monday and then make sure it ran all week and I'd go on vacation and then say I'm working. So, <laughs> so you actually have to check it sometimes. Oh, yeah. Okay. But actually I do, I do know like a number of years, uh, this is when I started at CU about 10 years ago. Yeah. We had a PhD student. She had to hire a programmer to yeah run the model and everything. So she, she put everything together, but, but she definitely needed the programming assistance to make it work. Yeah. So that's what we see now. And, uh, and also maybe uh, data science is, is, is the topic or, or a new area that I see is, is emerging and definitely needed. Okay, great. And then um, what are some things or what are important, I would say, research horizons that you're looking at? But my personal opinion is that energy storage is, is the first thing that if someone solves that problem, then <laughs> we have, a, I would be more optimistic. Um, it's also CCS, C uh, carbon capture and storage, and CCUS, which is not just capturing uh, CO2, but also using it in, in chemical processes. Um, opportunities for deployment. But on the other hand, what I see and where we are trying to do more development in our research is uh, the physical impacts of climate change and economic valuation of, of natural disasters, it's increasing frequency. I mean, for example, uh, insurance companies, they need to know, they need to try to calculate how much uh, they will have to pay for these natural disasters. And um, so climate change is definitely happening. You can quantify these transition risks if the whole decarbonization happens. But physical risks are physical, not even risks are not risks, but physical impacts are happening. And, um, and to quantify those impacts, quantify those impacts on productivity and GDP and, and what it means for certain sectors is, is definitely a, a, an important research area, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And we, we definitely see um, another area where activists or sorry, investors, hedge funds, and other investors are pushing companies like ExxonMobil to change their strategies uh, and shift away from oil just because it's bad investment, <laughs> investing in, in oil, basically, over the long term uh, and bad, bad for the earth. We have a research team called Sustainable Investment. So this is exactly what we look at. And uh, we had just have a, a blog article that came out it's, it's titled why climate scenario analysis is more than a tick box exercise uh -huh. so i suggest you read that as well 
Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll definitely put a link uh, to it there as well. Okay, Dora, I want to thank you very much uh, for coming on today and discussing the report and about Cambridge Economic Metrics. So thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation, Wayne. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 page, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.